So yeah, I mean, I was almost completely passed out, but um, and then he he did that, and and I kind of like freaked out, and then all Rich Lowry did was just yell, "Drive, drive, drive!" And wow. I was like, "Shouldn't we like call the cops or something?" And he's like, "Drive! Don't we can never explain this." And it was like, "Oh, geez, was, that's that's pretty." Uh, oh, oh, well, the episode started. Oh, 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 sorry. Let's let's get going. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Brought to you this week from the bowels of the American Enterprise Institute and um, put out over the glorious doohickeys and thingamabobs and series of pulleys and pneumatic tubes of National Review podcasts. Uh, with me is Jack Butler. Say hello, Jack Butler. Hello, Jack Butler. Saw that coming. And um, Yeah, it's predictable, but it always gets a cheap laugh. That's what I'm all about, cheap so laughs. So we decided to do this in large part because... We are scheduled to do, uh, or we're trying to work out the logistics of doing a podcast with Ben Sass. But since I'm going to have to be on the road and he's going to have to be on the road and I don't trust the technology to work out just right, we figured we would put this sort of quasi-rank punditry catch-up episode in the can or out there. And if the Sass thing happens, great. If it doesn't happen, we'll put it off for next week. So this week's episode, or this week's episodes, depending on how this works out, are brought to you by Conversations with Bill Crystal. We'll have more about that in a little bit. But uh, for now, it's just Jack and I. Jack, how are you? Oh, well, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Is, <laughs> uh, that, is that to make up for the fact that I didn't talk last time, that you're just bringing me on in, in such a casual way? Well, it wasn't so much... That you didn't talk. It's that I would say for the last forty-five minutes, you sat there very much the way like. Uh, Are you going to compare me to a dog? I am. My dog Zoe uh, sits in the front seat when she sees a dog she doesn't approve of crossing the street. She, her <laughs> eyes narrow and she just glares at it, and you can just hear this very low growl coming out. And you kind of like were glaring and quite clearly cross about the whole thing. Macabre rictus is the phrase you used to describe my face, which I think fit quite well yeah, um, also a great iron maiden cover band uh probably probably <laughs> um and uh yeah so for people who don't know what we're talking about uh the last episode of the remnant we had yoram hazoni on to talk about his book Na uh, the virtues of nationalism virtue virtue right sorry there's but only one <laughs> <laughs> um and i mean maybe we can i don't know if it makes sense to talk about this right here but i I was very frustrated with that podcast, and I didn't realize my frustration towards the end. Um, I like Yoram Hazoni. I think his book is really interesting. Um, I th think he's kind of a spellbinding guy to talk to. But over the course of about an hour and 45 minutes, if you listen closely to that podcast, I kept trying to start an argument about something, about one thing or another thing, because I'm a critic of nationalism. And instead, it, f it dawned on me towards the end of the thing that, that – his preferred mode of argumentation on this stuff is to pull back. It's sort of like a rope-a-dope thing. And, you know, and to say, well, look, you know, national, I'm not trying to solve all the world's problems. Whenever I tried to point out that nationalism could go off the rails, he said, well, then that's not nationalism, right? Because nationalism is about staying within your borders, not going beyond them. Once you go beyond them, it's sort of imperialism. And I just... uh I think one of the reasons why it went so long is that I kept trying to figure out a way into a line of questioning that would start a, a meaningful argument. And it's vexed me since then because uh, I, I felt like 
what the hell was all that about in a certain way? I mean, again, I like your Amazonian, and I think it's an interesting book, and we, I thought the conversation, a lot of people seem to have liked the conversation, but I kind of have this feeling like the book is basically an argument. Uh, you can tell I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, muttering in airports, you know. Uh, <laughs> You've been in a lot of airports. Been in an enormous number of airports. Um, the book in some ways feels like a political philosophy that was reversed engineered from coming up with the right self-conception and foreign policy for Israel to a certain extent. And insofar as, you know, it's about, you know, uh, you know well-defined biblical borders that you're not supposed to exceed in that if, if certain land belongs to you and is within your borders, you have the right to get it. His response about American exceptionalism, I thought was just very strange to me. But anyway, it just, I kind of feel like I want to do over in some ways. Um, and I do think that you can make the case that given the givens of how he describes his, his, his theory of what nationalism is, is what he's really talking about is nationism, right? It's like in the academic literature and in popular journalistic parlance, when we talk about nationalism, we're talking about more of a movement about a culture or a people than about define borders and all of these kinds of things. I mean, I understand why his argument fits the political moment right now. We just had Donald Trump this week announce that he's a nationalist. But, you know, nationalist movements have had had more to do with a, a, a specific people or cultural ambition or irredentism or, or unification and whatnot. And what he's talking about or what he goes back to whenever pressed is like, look, I'm just talking about a way to organize the planet. You know, and that the best system is to have different nations that have recognizable borders. And anything that goes beyond their borders is illegitimate because you're not supposed to go beyond your borders. And I'm not trying to solve all the world's problems. Anyway, I just found it very – I didn't realize how frustrating I found it until I was done. And you were sitting there glowering at me for going so long. But one of the reasons I was going so long was that I was trying to – sort of elucidate a more direct, you know, uh, debate about something and just eluded us. Yeah, so I was uh, vexed while it was happening, but after it was over, I was fine. So we had a sort of reverse. I mean, I haven't really thought about it at all since then. So I I, I think, all things considered, I prefer my mental state in this matter to yours. I have not thought about it. I've not been vexed by it in the aftermath. I was just vexed by it during. I understand. That's fair. That's fair. So... What else do we have to talk about? Uh, let's talk about Donald Trump calling himself a, a nationalist. I think it's 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 less of a big deal than you know. There are a bunch of people on Twitter and elsewhere saying how I'm going to be so upset about all of this. I'm not particularly upset about it. In some ways, I think you can make the case that it's good news because he's now at least openly admitting that his primary ideological allegiance, such as it is, is to something other than conservatism. And then, you know, we can have a conversation or a debate about where the parallels between conservatism and nationalism or the overlap between conservatism and nationalism is and where they're in contradiction to each other. But I prefer this. On the flip side, it's going to be kind of exhausting. All the people who are going to be talking about how they're nationalists now <laughs> um, without really knowing why they're saying that other than the fact that it's sort of a, a bumper sticker phrase or a, a political slogan rather than a thing that has some real meaning to it. Yeah. So you would think like the the surface level interpretation of or a surface level interpretation of this is that you would think Steve Bannon might be very happy. It's like, oh, I'm not even in the administration anymore. Trump's still calling himself a nationalist. But on the other hand, you could look at it this way that 
it might further suggest that whatever role or influence Steve Bannon had in the administration was even less than we thought, <laughs> if Trump is willing to describe himself this way without Steve Bannon being around. Yeah, I mean, Bob Costa of the Washington Post, he had a tweet thread about this saying that the fact that Trump finally called himself a nationalist is the end of a very long story where he resisted it precisely because it was Bannon's thing. And he thought it was – and Trump kind of thought it was a fever swampy thing that uh, was – too obscure and too, you know, tainted in, with sort of right-wingy fever swamp stuff. And the fact that he feels comfortable saying it now might be a sign that it's no longer that it's no longer associated with Bannon in that way. You know, Trump's speech at the UN, which was all about how glorious nationalism is, you know, and how we have to how every cover how every culture has, is distinct and must be celebrated on its own terms. So. You know, Saudi Arabia, for example, has a rich history of dismembering journalists, um, and uh, we have to respect that culture. Uh, and orb touching. And orb touching. You know, this is all downstream of orb touch. I mean, the the most surreal orb t- post orb touch thing, at least the last week, has got to be uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, coming out as this forceful champion for uh, the sanctity of journalists and keeping them safe when he has literally. I think it is now official. He's locked up more journalists than anybody in modern history and um, had a bunch assassinated, a bunch more tortured. But he's really, really, really offended that 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 the Saudis killed this guy, Kasoji. And it seems to me that the way we're talking about this is pretty dumb. The Turks are screwing with the Saudis for their own purposes. They do not care that this guy was murdered. They care that he was murdered on their soil, in effect, because that's embarrassing to them. But we are – the Turks are playing a, playing with the Western press and the, the punditocracy perfectly in all of this by playing leaking out these drips and drabs. And I admit, look, the freaking Saudis are morons that they did this this way. Um, and they're evil. And all, I have no dog in any fight, right? I have a column in the LA Times today about this. You know, my – I am much more – critical of what the Trump administration did prior to the murder rather than after. I mean, I don't like to talk about $110 billion as why and weapon sales, which is not even really kind of true, but I don't like that being the, the talking point that Trump led with. And it's, I think, I think David French wrote about this, that why are, why are we acting as though that, that binds us to Saudi Arabia when it should be, it's the other way around. Like they're the, right. the ones who want our weapons. Yeah, let's no, let, let's, right. let, let's leverage for us, not for them. Right, right, and and besides, their whole military is embedded in an American system, you know, technological system of computers and 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 um, compatibility with other existing weapon systems. And so, this idea that the Saudis could just switch to Russian or Chinese stuff is just not true. I mean, it would cost them a lot more money. They'd have to retrofit everything to make it all work. Plus, there isn't like an existing order in somebody's inbox for $110 billion worth of weapons. A lot of this is sort of aspirational nonsense. But I don't, anyway, I don't like all that talk. I think it's way too mercantilist or way too mercenary. But I kind of have sympathy for the Trump administration. They're stuck in this stupid place where the Saudis did something so unbelievably stupid that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Or in this case, you can't put the columnist back together, right? And, um, and their lies make it worse because there's one thing that everybody should know is that when, you know, 
you come up with crazy lies about a murder and it's got this whodunit kind of feel, um, this sort of Le Carre kind of spy novel or Daniel Silva kind of spy novel. I should say Brad Thor, who's a friend of this podcast, kind of spy novel. Um, atmosphere to it, that it's just going to make the press go berserk. You know, never mind the fact that this guy wrote for the Washington Post and there's a certain amount of guild, tribal, you know, we have to protect our own thing, which I think is completely natural and fine. Um, and so when you tell people, oh, yeah, no, it was a fist fight and one guy punched him so hard he was dismembered into 15 different pieces. That's just not a it's not that that story will not hold. Yeah, unless it's Bruce Lee doing the punching. I'm not going to believe it. Well, there is like the five. What, what is it? The um, there's the in in. Kill Bill. Kill Bill. It's the five finger floating palm. Exploding heart technique. Exploding heart technique. And then in Trading Places, there's the court of blood technique, where if Eddie Murphy punches you the right way, a court of blood just drops out of your body. But, you know, this is one of these things like the. Um, you know what it kind of reminds me of a lot is The Road to Perdition. Where uh, the movie, not the not the like, not the path we're all on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the movie, what's his name? Um, not Tom Hanks. The, Jude Law. No. Uh, Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Right. His son, played by James Bond guy, is this irresolute jerk. Right, and he kills people. It's hugely embarrassing and stupid, and it gets Paul Newman really angry. But at the end of the day. Um, Paul Newman will not give up his own son, even though his own son killed Tom Hanks's fam- most of Tom Hanks's family. Oh, spoiler alert, people! And um, there's similar, there's a similar relationship in the first John Wick. Yeah. So there's just this inability. People are in hardened positions, right? And so Tom Hanks is just like, look, the guy killed my wife and kid. I must kill him. There's just no choice, right? And Newman's like, there's no way I'm going to give up my own child. So you know, it's a rock and a hard place kind of thing. By killing Khashoggi and getting caught so blatantly about it, you have all these people saying, well, now the crown prince has got to go. Saudi Arabia has got to repent or pay for this in some way, which is just inconceivable as a matter of Saudi politics. And at the same time, it's the, the, the stakes keep getting raised higher and higher in all of this. And I, I think it's incredibly, it's one of these weird cases where because of something so incredibly dumb and evil, don't get me wrong, but, you know, all of these countries do a lot of evil things, right? I mean, the Saudis behead 150 people a year. They are, you know, turning a blind eye to to, to, to rape and all sorts of horrible things in Yemen. Um, they cut people's hands off for all sorts of various things. The Turks killing all sorts of people. So, you know, it's, as Paul Newman says, There are only murderers in this room. Right. In the Middle East, they're all murderers. And but it's one of these things where because it was so stupid and it gives nobody a safe harbor, nobody has a way to save face. And the Turks are so happy to let the Americans give Saudi Arabia a hard time while Turkey plays this weird role that, again, I don't think we're going to go into like World War One or anything, but it's a little bit like the assassination of, of Archduke Ferdinand. Yeah. Where. Everyone gets locked into this the, these decision trees they can't get out of. And the idea that we should be calling for the replacement of the ruler of, of an allied country because they murdered this guy is just weird to me, given how many other people they murdered that would never really bother us. And 
Um, I just don't, I don't know how we get out of this. And everybody who thinks there's some easy foreign policy solution to this, I just think they're wrong. I think what America needs to do, at the very least do is not lie, not be part of the cover up. Um, it's this idea that, you know, Pompeo is out there to get to the bottom of what happened. <laughs> it's just like so incredibly stupid and mortifying. Everyone knows what happened. I mean, I, like, I don't know, this morning they just announced that uh, they found, I think, Khashoggi's head or some parts of his body in the Saudi consular guy's garden, which could have been, for all I know, could have been planted there by the Turks. I don't know. But I don't think so. It does seem to me, you know, there's that great line from Thoreau where he says, some circumstantial evidence is very strong is when you find a trout in the milk. <laughs> uh, when you find, you know, the murdered journalist's body in the garden of the head of the Saudi consulate or whatever, that seems like a plausible bit of circumstantial evidence. If only we could find a stronger clue. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this this points out one of my great and abiding peeves is the 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 pundit refrain which we hear we heard enormously from the left about Hillary Clinton's server and quite a bit about Donald Trump and the collusion stuff about how there's no smoking gun and in this this formulation drives me nuts. First of all, in the case of Hillary, there was a smoking gun. It was the server, <laughs> the illegal server that she made and put in her basement. It was just sitting there all smoky-like, right? I mean, like, that was the smoking gun. If the claim is, is that she was doing something around normal security provisions that was wrong and, and, and arguably illegal and that she lied about it, and then you find the thing that she was doing, uh, you know, the physical manifestation of it, that's the smoking gun, right? <laughs> um, but nowhere else in law or life do we say, well, you don't, you have no smoking gun as therefore proof that I can't be convicted of anything. You know, the metaphor of a smoking gun is that you literally, I think it comes from Sherlock Holmes, is you literally walk in right after you hear a gunshot and you look and there's the murderer holding the smoking gun, right? Like, there's very few criminals are sent to jail based on the smoking gun theory, right? It's like, it's usually like a preponderance of evidence or a confession. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that aren't smoking guns that fall short of a smoking gun that uh, still imply guilt. And you get this thing where we start moving the standards in politics to it has to be so obvious that so-and-so is guilty that there is no BS safe harbor for me to hide in and that I have to admit it. And as long as I don't have to admit it, the person is not actually guilty yet. That's not a real <laughs> argument. But anyway. So have you started reading Ben Sass's book yet? Oh, yeah. I finished it already. What did you think about it? I mean, we're going to talk about it, you know, when he's here. But I, I am – there's not much really in there that is of, of a surprise to me. It is – in fact, funny thing – I recognized a almost a precise paragraph from something he said on this very show. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so it is clearly in his head, or we can claim inspiration for it, but it's probably the former because the the, the time he mentioned it was not that long ago, and the book has probably been in was probably in his head. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure there are many things I've said on this podcast that you could find in my book. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, um, yeah. So does he explain why he wrote a book about? 
1954 movie about giant ants of attacking Southern <laughs> I'm California. I'm glad that I'm not the only one who's thinking of that movie, which is a good movie. I mean, in terms of uh, 50 sci-fi B-movies, that is one of the probably top five that you should actually watch, along with Forbidden Planet, Day of the Earth Stood Still. What do you think? The original War of the Worlds, probably? I like the original War of the Worlds. Day of the Triffids. But that's a 70s movie, isn't it? No, no, it's black and white. Maybe it's the early 60s and not the 50s, but it's definitely not. A 70s movie. Yeah, but that's a movie about aliens who look like plants attacking. And they, like, don't they, can't they actually not attack? They have to be, they, like, put people to sleep first or something? I think. Or make everybody blind. That's what they do. They made everybody blind. That's right. That's why. And that way you couldn't see the very slow-moving trees sneak up on you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um... Yeah, I don't know. He hasn't explained why he wrote about that movie, but I'm glad it's getting more attention. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's going to be my first question. And it's it's funny because for those of us who don't know what we're talking about, there's a movie called Them with an exclamation point about giant ants that attack, uh, I think it's Southern California. Yeah, because they, they the climax of the movie takes place in, like, tunnels off of the, um, like, those uh, flood causeway things that are all over uh, maybe Los, start, Los Angeles area. But maybe it starts in Nevada because it might have been post-nuclear testing or something. Yeah, I think it does start in Nevada. And, uh, yeah, Little Girl is the first one to see them. Yeah, I always remember the phrase at the press conference, did the Cold War just get hot? And that was one of my earliest understandings of what the phrase Cold War meant in terms of when I was a little kid when I saw this. and But it's always stuck in my head. And uh, so, yeah, this movie about giant ants. And it's weird because I was thinking about that today because on... And then you saw a giant ant? <laughs> no, close though. On Twitter, there was video footage from a car, a cop car's dash cam of a pulled over arrest. And nothing interesting actually happened with the cop. But there was a spider walking across the lens of either like the dash cam or like on the windshield in just such a way... That's sort of like the forced perspective thing in Lord of the Rings, how they made Gandalf seem so tall. Yeah. It made the spider seem like it was like four feet wide <laughs> and, and crumbing up on the cop. And so it reminded me of the, the you know, my one of my absolute, and if we can get the audio, it'd be great. One of my favorite scenes in all his, Simpsons history is the, um, when a similar thing happens on the space shuttle where Homer is or on the space station and Homer is an astronaut and the ant farm breaks and ants go free and one of the ants gets really, really close to the camera lens. Even as when it's released from the ant farm, it screams, freedom, horrible freedom. And then, um, <laughs> in ant language, and then it gets to the lens. What a profound statement. Yeah. And it looks, and so Kent Brockman was just like doing this report from, you know, the studio with a live feed when this happens, right? And, and then the camera goes dead and Kent Brockman immediately says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, We've just lost the picture, but uh, what we've seen speaks for itself. The Corvair spacecraft has apparently been taken over, conquered, if you will, by a master race of giant space ants. It's difficult to tell from this vantage point whether they will consume the captive Earthman or merely enslave them. One thing is for certain, there is no stopping them. The ants will soon be here. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality, uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others to toil in their underground sugar caves. You know, and he <laughs> immediately turns to become, you know, like uh, part of the uh, Vichy government of Earth under the ant occupiers. Well, Ben Sass would not be in favor of that, <laughs> to bring this back to what you actually asked me about. Do we know that? Do we? <sighs> maybe he would be never ants. Maybe. maybe this is his way, maybe this book is his way of... Of of preemptively signaling to the ant overlords 
uh, hey, by the way, I'm uh, could be useful uh, in the ant regime. I think that might be it. Maybe that have all this in my head because I've been uh, watching Colony, which uh, you were the one who told me that it had been canceled, which bummed me out. Yeah. But so it's this TNT, I think, TBS, TNT thing. I watched the first two seasons on Netflix and I bought the third season on um, on iTunes. I, I gotta say I liked it, and it was it was one of the better post apocalyptic uh, sci fi shows I've seen in a while, because it you know uh, I'm a big believer that the the best stuff in all of that is the human intrigue. Like I'm the guy who likes the long conversations in Game of Thrones. I prefer you know when I was thinking about writing a zombie novel, I read all these interviews with Max Brooks, um, who wrote World War Z, and. He explained that his idea for writing World War Z came from the fact that he always liked like the first 10 or 15 minutes of zombie movies where society is not yet broken down and people are dealing with things and the newscasts are coming in about how, you know, the stay in your home, shelter in place, everything is under control. I like the human intrigue stuff and um, the colony thing has got a lot of really good sort of politics and really morally nuanced but also corrupted characters in it i bums me out that they canceled it yeah i think it was probably canceled because of people like me who were marginally interested in it but never made the the additional step to actually watching it um so sorry it's my fault you're sort of like the um the millions of people or the thousands of people in close encounters who may have gotten the signal to go to devil's tower but never made the actual connection and didn't go yeah well those those people are much better fathers than um than richard dreyfus's character so good for them that's right this is one of my great peeves is the um, – that that Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a terrible father and terrible husband. Yeah. And uh, Spielberg has said that he, he wrote – I think that's the one of the only movie scripts that he himself actually wrote that he directed. Right. And he's later said that he wouldn't have written it that way today. Yeah, if he – because he wrote it before he had become a father. Yeah. yeah. He's only like, I don't know, late 20s when that movie was released. Yeah. He was my, I think he was my age when he directed Jaws, which just makes me feel great about myself. You millennials need to stop doing that kind of thing. It's not healthy. But you know what is healthy? <laughs> a robust conversation about free trade. And uh, that's uh, what's in store for you on the latest edition of Conversations with Crystal. Of course, uh, our friend Bill Crystal has decided to uh, start uh, trolling through, I should say trawling through uh, the greatest hits of the Remnant podcast. And so on the latest episode, uh, our friend Scott Lincecum is on there to talk about free trade. And um, I'm glad that we could help make Scott the star that he is. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, you should know that Bill Crystal has a terrific series called Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube, and it's also a podcast. It's on iTunes, so you can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests, from Dick Cheney to David Axelrod. They've done more than 100 and it's an impressive list. So just to name a few, there's Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg, did I mention they have great taste? Jonah Goldberg, including the most recent release uh, with Scott Lincecum, who is not Jonah Goldberg. You can watch any and all of Bill's conversations on the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. 
So if you like my podcast, and if you don't, why are you listening to this? You'll enjoy Conversations with Bill Crystal. Okay, so Jack, what else is there to uh, to to talk about? We were supposed to do. We talked about doing some rank punditry. I, I'm so drunk, I can't even remember. Did we do any rank punditry already? <laughs> uh, well, there was some foreign policy punditry, uh, but there wasn't really punditry of the rank variety, truly rank, as in midterms and whatnot. Oh, midterms, yeah. So we're like, I don't know, 15, 16 days out, something? Like uh, no, today's Tuesday, so it's 14. 14 days. From election day. Yeah, all right. So, you know, it's funny. I don't know, over the last year, I've gone from saying... If you listen to the smartest people right now, it's obvious that the Democrats are going to take back 30 seats, 40 seats. It's going to be a huge wave to saying, oh, maybe not. Now it looks like the blue wave is over. Um, we're dissipating to, oh, blue wave is back. And we are definitely in a blue wave dissip- dissipating moment. I think it's indisputably so that the Kavanaugh thing. I mean, my God, Chuck Schumer must be, you know, throwing empty bourbon bottles through his TV you know, about how badly he mismanaged that Kavanaugh thing. Um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, turns out freelancing at uh, Michael Avenatti is not a great idea. Who has fallen, I think he may have peaked, maybe, because he's, he's gotten a lot of bad luck lately. He, his star was rising for a couple months, but... Yeah, no, I now I now picture Michael Avenatti, you know, home, drinking his, you know, finding solace in a bottle, still, you know partially obscured by the air, the distortions that come from being just surrounded by so much Axe body spray. But um, uh, he has beclowned himself in ways that are truly impressive in this day and age. Yeah. Um, and although, remember, they're always second and third acts. I mean, uh, uh, Scaramucci, who has has now parlayed his 10 days, 11 days, <laughs> working as White House communications director into a new book. So who knows what, what Avenatti can do next. But Well, wasn't that, I mean, that's basically what that um, that that uh, commie apologist did, 10 Days That Shook the World, John... Um, John Reed? Yeah. So it's funny you brought that up. I just uh, was watching, I didn't watch the whole thing because uh, I'd, I'd rather shave off my beard with a cheese grater. <laughs> but I was watching some of Red's. Recently, it's gone cable. It's playing a lot on cable these days. Yeah, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. My father didn't like communists. Yeah, I, and uh, I think I, I've heard that. So my dad took the whole family to see Reds when it came out in the theater. And eighty-one, I think something like that. So I mean, a lot of that went over my head at the time, right? But my dad, metaphorically speaking, prepped like. Uh, Rocky Balboa in Siberia <laughs> to like engage with this movie and because the hate was going to be so strong. I mean, he was going to go full Sith and he came out of it horribly disappointed because it did not rise to the level of being needed to take be taken seriously. It was kind of more of a romantic romance than a serious intellectual endeavor and so hagiographic of the of the commies. But Reed was a bad dude. I mean, you know, Reed Reed writes, I think in 10 Days It Shook the World, but certainly elsewhere, about how how much he loved this Russian phrase that translated as up against the wall to be shot. Right? And he was not a lover of peace and democracy. He was a bad dude. And, um, and I just always remember afterwards my dad was so crestfallen that he didn't get to like – Hate it for the right reasons. Oh, <laughs> it was just like lame. You know, it was it was not like really defending the guy or covering up his crimes. It was just sort of like 
here's an opportunity to show how clever Warren Beatty is at lighting his enormous forehead, <laughs> um, which is a huge thing. Go watch Dick Tracy, all these things. He's the only guy who still uses that um, – I don't know if they call it letterbox. It's that slit lighting that just catches his eyes and puts both his cheeks and his forehead in shadow because he's so self-conscious about his enormous – you know, uh, see it from space forehead. <laughs> and, um, uh, and once you notice it, it's like, it's like that you trolley can... shot that Spike Lee loses, uses in all his movies where they're not really walking. They're being pulled. Once you notice they're doing it or like the lens flares in JJ Abrams, <laughs> they just take you out of the movie every time you see them. Yeah. So what do you make then of your Nash review colleague, Kyle Smith's argument that, Reds is actually sort of like Lawrence of Arabia in the sense that the first part is a straightforward glorification of its subject and the second part in the and in the second part of the movie after the intermission it's then almost like a rebuttal of the first part because like the disillusionment starts to set in the nuances start to get unraveled I'd have, I'd have to go back and look at it but I love Kyle Smith but it makes me want to break a bottle about his head and neck for him to compare it to Lawrence of Arabia. Because Lawrence of Arabia is a truly glorious film. Yes. I have not seen Reds. I've seen Lawrence of Arabia. So I, I can't speak to this comparison. But... Yeah. I mean, again, I haven't watched all of Reds because Maureen Stapleton, you know, I mean, these old, you know, old communist, bol true Bolshevik hags being treated as if, like, your sweet aunt is just very difficult for me to take. Yeah, because they, they like, get interspersed into the movie, right? Yeah. They're, they're actual, the actual people. Well, some of the actual people. I mean, there's, it's a, it's a little bit like, like a band of brothers where they do interviews with real people in different parts, but how many of, like, the real players were left a lot, were still alive? By the time he made the movie, I'm yeah, not sure. How many of them survived the purges? Yeah, no, exactly. So, oh, but midterms, right? Um, yeah, that's what we were talking about, wasn't it? Can you tell how eager I am to talk about midterms? I still think it's it will be shocking if the Democrats don't take back the House. Uh, but they could do it in just the perfect – I mean, the, the, the writers of 2018 could do it in just the perfect way, right, where they take back the House – but they you know they need twenty three seats. Let's say they take it, they win by twenty five seats. That means at least of right now, there probably won't be enough. There won't be enough Democrats who have said that they will vote for Nancy Pelosi to have her made the new the speaker. Yeah. And if that happens, um, you'll have this unbelievably dysfunctional. Uh, I don't want to use net bad words. Uh, fecal festival. Um, and <laughs> oh, there's the title of the episode. And uh, uh, it will um, put Democrats into even more crazy disarray. I tend to be with Pod on this. That if the Democrats don't take back the House, uh, I'm not. I'm not arguing for the Democrats to take back the House. But I'm saying that what happens to the left, if we're talking about this, and ever widening gyre of bad cycles and and people going to the extremes and Avenadiism taking over everywhere. The sense of utter dismay by the left if they don't take if they don't if they don't take back the house, I think will be the next required step on the way to actually seeing political violence return in American life. I mean you can see it already, the stuff bothering people in restaurants and all that kind of stuff and you know, this you know, they found a bomb at Soros's house and uh, this guy was arrested for threatening to kill senators who voted for Kavanaugh. Uh, this will all seem 
like a prelude to something much worse. And I'm not saying things will be glorious and wonderful if the Democrats do take the House because then they're going to, you know, they have a gift for overreacting and, and blowing things. You know, I just can't imagine that Schumer looking back on the Kavanaugh hearings, to get back to the point I was trying to make, doesn't feel profoundly stupid. You know, I mean, do you remember the old, you know, V8 commercials where you slap yourself on the forehead and say, oh, I could have had a V8? Yeah. Uh, Not um, always yourself who's who's slapping. It's sometimes other people who slap you. I don't remember. I think you're thinking of the Three Stooges there. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, sure. That's def. Well, yeah. I, I those were at a at a restaurant I was at recently. Those were playing on the on a projector in the back. But so maybe you're right. But you could see Schumer playing, doing the I should have had a V8 stupid 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 thing, hitting his forehand with a letter opener about how badly they handled this. I mean. Um, I think they basically handed three seats to the Republicans. They unified the Republican Party. And no easy task these days. <laughs> no. And it, um, I think there's some spillover in some House races. But uh, it's this, as someone who cares more about the Senate than the House for all the obvious reasons, uh, the Democrats basically just handed the Senate to the Republicans. Um, and uh, so I don't know. I think that the i don't think there's going to be a red wave right somebody was talking about a red tide oh selena zito was talking about a red tide which is, does not strike me as the greatest metaphor because red tides deprive suck all the oxygen out of the water and kill all the life in it uh-huh. um it's like an algae bloom right um it's also kind of communist sounding what we is. were saying earlier it is um hold on i got i just gotta get another beer um <laughs> So what else are we supposed to be talking about? Uh, well, I want to I want to uh, affirm your sense that the most chaotic outcome is the likeliest outcome. Yeah, yes. I, I have a friend who that's the way to bet in everything these days, right? <laughs> I have a friend who is sort of enmeshed in in campaigning around these contested house races, and that's what he told me is that that's the, like the he said this a couple of months ago that that's the likeliest outcome, but also the most entertaining possible outcome mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also the most chaotic outcome uh which i would be it's popcorn worthy seeing what happens no i that. think that's right i think that's right and um you know and if you have this remnant friendly nihilistic <laughs> it's all going to hell anyway you know uh attitude about these things um then entertainment is sort of all we've got <laughs> <laughs> but but it's in uh, don't you warn against turning politics into a form of entertainment? I do, I do. And I also, you know, signed a thousand books, you know, in the last year saying despair is a sin. So I'm not despairing. I'm just saying uh, um, I'm putting my energies elsewhere, as it were. Um, yeah, to your dogs. To my dogs. And uh, no, but I, 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 it will be just a wonderful spectacle if nancy pelosi can't get enough votes to be the new speaker but nobody else can get enough votes to be the new speaker anyway and people who worry about how they're not going to get anything done we know they're not going to get anything done yeah uh, congress doesn't do well the house doesn't do anything anymore well we're, you know and ramesh has been writing about this where everybody you ask on the hill saying what's your agenda after the election of republicans and they just all mutter you know, uh, infrastructure. We're going to keep working on infrastructure, whatever the hell that means. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of, I'm in the position where I think, 
everything's going to get dumber before it stops. You know, and I, again, this is something that applies across the board. There are a lot of people who, when I and they hear me say things like that, they think I'm talking about talking about just about Donald Trump. I'm not. I mean, like the whoever whose ever idea it was was to launch a caravan of thousands of of illegal immigrants from Central America and aim it at the border two weeks before the election. <laughs> it's it's literally like they have no idea what what the actual political consequences of something like that is, right? And this is one of the problems you get on the left. So many of these people, I don't think a lot of them have read Lenin, right? And don't really understand, you know, the phrase heighten the contradictions. But there's just an enormous number of people on the left and the right. And Bannon has talked about this a bunch of times about how you have to perpetuate a sense of crisis um, to force the things that you want. It goes back to Obama. They did a lot of that too. And... And so I, I think these guys have so little cognizance or appreciation for the damage they're doing to actual their, – their healthy mainstream you know, political agenda when they do stunts like this. Uh, I know Trump loves to say the Democrats paid for this caravan. But I mean in terms of political benefit, it would make far more sense if Roger Stone paid for it, right? Because it's entirely to Trump's benefit and – not to the benefit of a single Democrat running in a district that isn't plus 20, you know, Democratic already. And I think that this is the kind of thing, this sort of performance theater, Avenadiism, uh, rejection of civility stuff uh, is going to take over the Democrats even worse. Republicans are going to respond in kind. We saw Nancy Pelosi attacked at a restaurant recently, you know, people calling her a communist or something. And I think these centrifugal forces are just going to get nuttier and nuttier before anything gets better. And I just, the only thing, only place where it stops being having any entertainment value is is I actually I I sincerely believe that someone's going to get shot or hurt badly, and that's not cool. And um, and we know from the last couple of years that at least when Repu- well that already happened. I know we know when Republicans get shot, it doesn't count as uh, with the mainstream media as this disturbing thing that causes us to maybe we should all come to our senses a little bit. I mean, the the Scalise shooting, there was a lot of, you know, politeness and immediate term remorse stuff, but it is amazing how uh, that has sort of been memory hold. But when uh, Gabby Giffords was shot, the mainstream media, the Democratic Party, they all, you know, even though that wasn't a political act at the time, that was from a truly deranged, crazy person, that was treated as if this is a sign that things are spiraling out of control, but no one really changed their behaviors. And I just, it does bum me out to think about what would have to happen for people to actually stop playing these kinds of games and indulging in this this kind of rhetoric. To have a single standard for political violence <laughs> yeah <laughs> or or just to have a or 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 just the sort of exterminationist rhetoric not to sound like paul krugman that you find all over the place this idea this dehumanizing rhetoric you find all over the place you know the stuff that i assume when he's done with talking about the ants that ben sass talks about in his book right yeah and um, it's it's uh, it, he gets into that a little bit after the introduction yeah it's actually right in the middle where all where a good straussian puts his his the crux of his argument um, uh, do you know who you know who does read Lenin and uh, 
knows about heightening the contradictions. Hmm. The Slovenian Marxist philosopher Slavo Zizek, mm-hmm. who says that he would have voted for Trump for this exact reason, to heighten those contradictions. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. And is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. I'm, I, I look forward to the Slovenian uh, remnant listeners correcting me. Yeah, so he's uh, he is consistent. Because, yeah, Hillary, voting for Hillary, I, it wouldn't have really heightened many contradictions. It, it would have been sort of a con, an act of, of, of continuity, from uh, certainly from the Obama administration. From the Obama but I, I think you would have seen a lot of people on the right lose their friggin' mind. That's true. There would have been some contradictions heightened yeah. there. Um, I mean, I mean, the whole reason why Trump, I mean, the, the single most unifying thing about Trump's candidacy on the right was that he was not Hillary Clinton. True. Um, she yeah, she's, remains the Medusa's head that you can pull out of a bag to petrify your enemies on the right. And she's not going anywhere. It's just <laughs> hilarious. She may, maybe those 2020 uh, ambitions predictions are correct. Well, so I wrote this in the two, early, two, you know, 15 years ago when there was talk about Hillary running again and – or running. It's, it always feels like you have to say again, but I think <laughs> it would have been for the first time. And, you know, I always say, I always used to say to people who say, don't you think the Clintons are gone now? And I would always be like, have you seen no horror movies? (laughs) Jason always comes back, right? Freddie always comes back. The Clintons will, we will never be done with the Clintons. They're, they're going to be a permanent fixture. I don't, they're going to be robots named Clinton or androids named Clinton or run up holograms, but they're not going away. All right. So what else do we have to talk about? We got to do some various and sundry travel adventures. Travel. Okay. So first of all, I wish I had their names. I have a list. Uh, I have a list. On my, this is a good list. On my travels, uh, two or three people gave me cigars, which I always uh, find uh, a sign of the profound depths of their their mensch-like humanity. And at the William F. Buckley uh, Jr. Prize Dinner, which was, I got to say, an amazing event. Lindsey Craig at NRI does amazing work. Um, it was at the Chicago Cultural Center. Where when I was walking in, uh, a mob there was tr- a true mob of protesters outside, and I think they were mostly there to protest Betsy DeVos. Oh, um, and uh, who was at the dinner? She won the Buckley Prize a couple of years ago. And as we were, as you walk in, you have to walk this gauntlet of protesters with drums and all this kind of stuff, holding up signs. And they started a chant of "ruling class." Ruling class. When um, if only when I was walking in, it was awesome, and I kind of turned around to smile. I was like, you know, <laughs> hell yeah, what has what has two thumbs and is a member of the ruling class? This guy. And uh, but then one guy uh, just started got up in my face and started yelling at me that I was a traitor, which was just less interesting. Traitor to what cause? To the good things, right? Oh. To social justice, to something or other. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, it didn't seem to me that. An Oxford-style debate with these guys, all that productive. And I was, you know... Resolved. This house agrees that... I was very concerned that um, someone was, like, going to throw urine or something on me. Again. And um, so I didn't so I didn't linger too long. And anyway, but at the dinner, like, this this couple, long-time NR readers, you know, uh, I've met them before, but I don't want to give their names because I don't know if they want it public, but they walk up and they gave me... A fantastic bottle of eighteen-year-old scotch, wow. and and this is this is how I want to be greeted around the country for at all times. Be careful when you say that. Yeah, no, I know because I know. it does create travel problems though because I have to check the bags when I get <laughs> big bottles of scotch. But yeah. that's the price I'm willing to pay. So in an in an interview um, in 
when the Beatles were in their early phase, they did all sorts of hilarious press interviews because they were really funny and it was good press for them. But in one of them, George Harrison was asked what his favorite snack was, and he said gummy bears. I assume. I hoped. I hope this isn't anachronistic. I hope gummy bears existed in the early '60s. But once he once this was known at all concerts and at all public appearances, George Harrison got gummy bears thrown at him. Yeah. So you wouldn't want bottles of scotch thrown at you, I guess, unless you can catch them. Thrown, no. Handed, gently. Yeah. Is good. And, uh, and so I had, a, I had, I had, gosh, where have I been? So we talked about going to Cedarville, went to Notre Dame. I debated Charles Kessler about the Trump presidency, which I think went well. Uh, we can link to it in the show notes. I mean, uh, Charles and I are friends. We tried to keep it civil. I think I might have gotten more heated at times, but that's also how I'm wired. How did you, what did you think of the debate? You were actually there. I was. It was the first time, not counting the RNC, that I'd actually gone to an event with you. Um, I had. I, I think that the, that and the Deneen Kessler U panel the night before, they were both. I mean, they were all intellectually roaring experiences, but or they were both intellectually roaring experiences. But I don't think anyone. I mean, I guess the the like the secret expectation or hope of all these events is that one person just suddenly says, "Oh, I was wrong." Yeah, that, I that, changed that my mind, and that that didn't happen to any of them. Yeah, no dramatic uh, uh, Saul to Paul moments from anyone. Yeah. So, but it was still interesting to he- all of you have have um, very interesting perspectives that are found grounded in uh, diverse intellectual foundations um, but no 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 fatal intellectual wounds uh, no no conversion moments yeah I mean I um, I mean th- as a generic proposition you know the the point of these things is never to convince your interlocutor on the stage. Yeah, that, I imagine that happens almost never. Yeah, uh, the point is to inter is to change the minds of the median person who's undecided on these issues in the audience, mm-hmm. which is a point I've often made to people. So why do you get into these arguments with people? I used to do a lot on the on National Review Online and the in the corner and and also sometimes in Twitter. So why are you gonna do that? You're never gonna change your mind. It's like yeah, but I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm trying to change your mind. I'm trying to change the reader's mind, the spectator, and. Again, I am biased because, uh, as again, as Ramesh Panuru likes to say, of course I think I have all the right positions because if I didn't, I would change my positions. <laughs> um, uh, but I think there's actually a lot of overlap between Deneen and and Yoram Hazoni. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, they both hate Locke. Yeah. They both blame Locke for all sorts of things that I don't think Locke deserves to be blamed for. Yeah, I feel like I, I had no idea how much Locke hatred there was in the world. Yeah. I mean, you get... Or in the modern... Not in the world. I don't think... Among, like, a certain subset of intellectuals yeah. on the on the right. Um, and I just... I find it utterly unpersuasive that, twere it not for Locke, we wouldn't have... We wouldn't be having the problems that we do with iPhones. Right. <laughs> and um, nor and I have a problem. You know, This is the problem with all sorts of forms of conservatism that look backward for model societies. Right. That's one of the defining psychological differences between right and left broadly understood is that the right tends to look back to the past for its inspiration for political organization. And the left looks forward to some sunny upland of history, some utopian society that, you know, Karl's Mar- Karl Marx, you know, 
belched out of you know uh, his nethers. Um, <laughs> Is that where you belched from? <laughs> well, um, and uh, um, I really I love I love this origin story stuff. I love the wrong turn arguments. I love playing intellectual connect the dots. I've always loved this argument that you get from Vergelin and from from Richard Weaver that all of our problems can be chased back to you know, Joachim Fior. But at the end of the day, I just don't think that political philosophy does everything that these guys think it does. And anyway, so I, I actually think there were some of my objections that I brought up to Deneen that he did not respond to that I thought when you say – we said you know there were no mortally wounding things – I think it is sort of the lacuna of responses to the fact that um, we are not used to babies dying on a regular basis. You know, for a, 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 a very Catholic intellectual at a Catholic school um, who's clearly a pro-lifer to just sort of hand wave or dismiss, you know, my point – that because of the scientific revolution, because remember he doesn't like bacon and none of that. And I don't mean I don't mean mm, bacon. I mean Francis Bacon. Well, we don't um, know. You may not. I doubt it. But who doesn't like bacon? And um, I'm not a huge fan. We'll talk about that. This... Um, but he doesn't like the entire, or he has grave misgivings about how things have gone wrong for five friggin' hundred years. And I just think. That is a classic example of the kind of thing I'm talking about in my book, which is the sense of ingratitude for all the good things that we've got. We just take them for granted. Yeah. And this – I mean to his credit, he doesn't want to go back to the quality of life in the 1500s. But he thinks that turning our back on the sort of stuff that got us out of the 1500s um, is a good idea. And I just – I find it utterly unpersuasive and – and he has this, this, and so does so does Yoram. They have this teleology, right? They have this sort of. It's it's, it's clearly not Marxist, but it is a kind of uh, determinism that says the trends have only gone in one direction, and you know, so that our we don't respect nature as much as we used to. I think this is just like flatly wrong. The stuff that people did three hundred years ago to nature was not out of respect. You know, they were clear-cutting forests, killing animals wholesale, all that kind of stuff. If anything, we now have elites, both liberal and conservative, probably have more respect for nature today than we did 100 years ago or 500 years ago. And for him to say that... So his all his trend lines go in one direction, and they don't account for the fact that the culture changes in all sorts of important ways. And so I think and sometimes in debates, the things that the points that people don't respond to are the most telling and significant uh, silence, significant silences. And speaking of significant silences, enjoy the silence. You know, uh, Charles Kessler, a, 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 a master of reading significant silences as a Straussian. I thought that the, the Kessler debate was interesting, but at the end of the day, you know, Charles's main focus of his defense of the Trump presidency boiled down to he doesn't get enough credit for his courage, right? I mean, was that, what else am I missing? Oh, and, the, and, and, and the form of a big chunk of his argument is to concede all of the problems with the guy and then just wave them away. And 
and so he, there weren't a lot of responses to my actual points, I thought, in that debate. But I'll leave that for others to decide. Again, I'm a big fan of Charles Kessler and known him for a very long time. Uh, but I, I usually don't come out feeling as confident that I had the better part of an argument in a debate. Um, I'm pretty hard on myself about public speaking and these kinds of things. And I just kind of felt like Charles didn't want to be, I don't think either of us wanted to be there to a certain extent. <laughs> um, but that, uh, um, on the, if you scored it like a boxing match, I just think that, that he missed more than I did. And I, I landed more than he did, but you know, you could have, <laughs> I would have loved to see that as a, as a sort of debate version of chess boxing, where each of you makes an argument, then you go around in the in the ring. You know chess boxing? I don't know chess boxing. It's a real thing, uh-huh. and it's exactly what I described. You make a move in chess, then you uh, do a round in the, in the, in the boxing ring. Seriously? Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate uh, scholar-athlete pursuit. You have to be good at boxing and at chess to perform well. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, you know... Charles Murray is a great chess player, <laughs> but I don't, I don't see him doing too well against, you know, a really good boxer. I'll just put it that way. Um, nor would I, obviously, but I'm not that great a chess player. All right. So we really did wander and meander quite a bit today. Yeah. Um, I, apparently people either at least don't mind it. Yeah. Some of them even like it. Lots of people on the road ask me about you. Um, lots of people on the road tell me they're on Team Jack, whatever the hell that is. Uh, well, when I was at Notre Dame, I actually met fans of me, yeah, which was frightening and yeah. terrible for my ego. Yeah, yeah, you, you got to learn to put that in its place. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't. I don't deserve. I don't deserve this. I'm. I'm not letting it get to me. Um, but and, I do appreciate it. I will say that. Yeah, no, it's 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 always very nice to hear, and the encouragement I've gotten on the road has been really sort of good for my mental health. But it doesn't compensate for the erosion of my mental health by being on the road so much. Um, <laughs> I'm just exhausted with it. I leave tonight for Florida for two days, and then where do I go after that? I'm going to Chapel Hill. Uh-huh. What day is that? That's Monday. I'm going to Chapel Hill on Monday. Correct. Dear God. Okay. And then after that? Uh, slight break. Then I think uh, – uh, then I might be back to Florida again. Yeah. And then there's also uh, New Orleans for that conference thing. So anyway, there's a lot of – it's been – it's winding down, but the half-life has been brutal. And, um, you know, I literally will, as Jack can attest, fly all the way home at great inconvenience just so I can fulfill my obligations to walk the dogs in the morning and then I go back to the airport. <laughs> um, because I feel so bad about leaving my wife in the lurch with all of this stuff. Oh, speaking of which, I've exacted a promise from the fair Jessica that she will be on the podcast after she – after Nikki – leaves the UN. Oh. So she will come on. And so wow. we got to figure out interesting questions, tasteful questions, <laughs> and uh, about, you know, life in Alaska, um, speech writing, what are like the 10 best things, 20 best things about being married to me. Um, <laughs> the interview dynamic there is going to be something to behold. I think so. Or to listen to since this is a podcast. Yes, it is a podcast. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for reiterating that. Um, all right. So now we're just prattling on. Um, do you know if the NR podcast survey is over? I think it is. Okay. Then never mind. So instead, use the energy that I was going to you ask you to deploy to do the NR podcast. 
to review us on iTunes, to go to our sponsors anytime. Always try slash dingo whenever you can. Um, anywhere. Anywhere and at all times. And uh, send us an email at, at remnantpod at uh, gmail. The Remnant Pod. At Correct. Gmail, and um, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. And if you can leave us a positive review somewhere, that'd be great. If you could subscribe to us, that would be great. You know, the editor's podcast is sneaking up on us. And uh, I don't want to be like, you know, sound like Churchill in Parliament in the 30s. But if we don't pay attention to this, this could lead to something really bad. Wow. Uh, or dehumanization. Uh, <laughs> or eliminationist rhetoric. Um, uh, or rhetoric. Uh, so anyway, and the... Um, uh, the downloads in this are still doing great, and we really appreciate it from everybody. And thanks to everybody um, on the road with all the encouragement about stuff. And really, and thank you in particular for the scotch, because scotch is good. <laughs> uh, until maybe later this week, I'll see you next time. No, you on this podcast. do just fine oh i can like hear the bristling of your facial hair against the mic can you really <laughs> yeah <I'll do> <laughs>